Hi, this is Mark Spiegler, and you're listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. Today's guests, Joan Jonas and Jason Moran, are singular figures in the American cultural landscape. Born in 1936, Jonas grew up in New York City within a culturally engaged family, and she became a performance artist long before the term even existed. Moran was born nearly 40 years later in Houston. When he was 13, he first heard the music of Thelonious Monk, and that immediately convinced him to become a jazz pianist. After moving to New York, he rose to fame in his mid-20s. In 2005, Jonas cold-called Moran, asking him to work with her on a performance for the newly opened Dia Beacon Museum. That piece, the shape, the scent, the feel of things, marked the beginning of their remarkable friendship and long-running, globe-spanning collaborations. In that sense, this episode is very much us parachuting into an ongoing conversation. The topics include how art forms flow together, the process of creation through rigorous improvisation, and what it means to be a performing artist in both senses of the word. I hope you'll enjoy this high-spirited conversation between Joan and Jason. If you do, please review and favorite Intersections wherever you get your podcasts. Joan Jonas, Jason Moran, welcome to the show. It's great to have you today. Before we start, I'd love to give our listeners a sense of place. So, Joan, where are you today and what do you see around you? I'm in New York City in my loft in Mercer Street. And I see my room around me with all my things in. And I see the computer in front of me. Jason, how about you? I'm in Harlem, New York City. And I'm in my piano room and around me are music books, and over my left shoulder is a drawing that Joan Jonas did with ice and ink. (laughs) Fantastic, and very contextual. (laughs) Joan, I'll start with you. You were born in 1936, and I've read in interviews that you said you wanted to be an artist from quite an early age, and I guess, based on my reading, that had a lot to do with the context that you grew up within. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and how it led you to be an artist. I was born in New York City, and I grew up here most of my life. I've spent here. And in relation to your question, I went to more schools than other children probably do because my parents kept changing their mind. But the first school from the kindergarten to second grade, it was a progressive school in Manhattan. And every morning they would say, what would you like to do today, Joan? And I would always say, I want to paint. And so I didn't learn how to read and write. They had to send me to another school to do that. But I did start with a love of making drawings and paintings very early. Were there people around you who were in the art world? Yes, actually. My stepmother's sister, Jeanne Reynal, who I met and knew, was in the center of the New York art world, the 30s, 40s, 50s. They knew Gorky and other artists at that time, Duchamp. I didn't meet those people myself, but I grew up in New York City and going to museums and seeing art from a very early age. And I loved it, let's just say. So that was wonderful to grow up with that. What was your artistic education? I think I always took art classes. And then finally, I majored in art history in college and started making, well, I was continuing to make art in college. And I had a wonderful teacher, Henry Rox, his name was. He was a German sculptor and probably very encouraging. Not that he thought I had talent, but he was just a very good teacher. And then I was in New York. I purposely stayed in New York City because I considered it a center where I could go look at art. I could listen to music. In relation to Jason, I saw Thelonious Monk. 
play once at NYU. That was a memorable experience. So I began to, in the 60s, go to everything I could in the downtown scene. Dancers, sculptors, painters, this group below 14th Street in which it was a very exciting time and innovative in the visual arts and in music and every other form. All these mediums for me were overlapping and interrelated. And that's how I began to think about my own work. I read, Joan, that when you discovered performance art, you destroyed the sculptures you had made previously. Is it true that you radically broke with your past in that way? Performance art as a form did not exist. That was a name that Willoughby Sharp gave it. But it wasn't called performance art until, well, the late 60s, early 70s. Before that, it was happenings and dance. I started going to see happenings, happenings in the 60s in New York, Oldenburg, Capro, and so on. Dancers, Yvonne Rayner, Simone Forti. And that's how I entered into the world. That's how I stepped from studying art history and making sculpture into performance. I stepped from one form to another. I destroyed my sculpture because I didn't think it was very interesting, and that's why I switched and started to do something called performance art. When I first began to do performances, the only person that reviewed my work at first was Jonas Mikas, who was a filmmaker. So filmmakers understood it, and poets. Many people did, but it certainly wasn't mainstream. I used to call, I'm going to do a piece. Jason, I'm going to go from downtown New York to Houston in the 80s when you were a young man. I've read that until you discovered a Thelonious Monk, you were training to be a classical pianist and that that encounter changed everything for you. And I'm curious, maybe you can also give us a little bit of background on your relationship with the arts, how it developed, and then how it changed after this encounter with Monk. Well, I know the first big impact of even recognizing what even Joan is talking about with relations, relationship to how the arts work with one another is just in my home. My parents were a Black middle-class family in Houston who always wanted to have us see Alvin Ailey's company when they came to town. Always wanted to have us go see a John Biggers exhibition when he made new paintings in Houston or see Andre Watts when he came to play with the Houston Symphony. And so they put my brothers and I in music classes just to keep us busy, is what I call it now. But I didn't like what I was playing. I actually detested the piano. I thought it was the most boring instrument. And when you were practicing piano in Houston, my piano was next to the window. So you'd be practicing this horrible Mozart, meaning it's horrible because I was playing it horribly and looking out the window and seeing your friends ride by on their bikes and yelling and screaming, talking about how much fun they're having. Meanwhile, I'm crying through Beethoven. <laughs> And I wouldn't say I was training to be a classical pianist. I was just being told to practice. <laughs> so there's <laughs> a big difference. Meanwhile, I think when I became a teenager and hearing Thelonious Monk, it was like, oh, actually, something about the way Thelonious Monk touches the piano and how much history he puts into the instrument that for somehow that vernacular works with what I'm hearing in the 80s. It was the moment where I turned the corner and I was never told to ever practice again because I wanted to practice. And Thelonious Monk was that pivot point for me. One of the things that struck me when I read about this, where Monk turns you into pianist or a willing pianist, it struck me as somehow parallel to Joan's transition from sculpture to performance in the sense that I think sculpture is a relatively static form and classical music is a relatively static form. Like you can play a Mozart 
symphony in different ways, but in the end, the notes are written on the page, whereas jazz is a very different thing. Was it a kind of liberation to feel that you could play what you wanted to play at that moment and not according to a score? So like when Joan talks about getting rid of a sculpture that maybe she didn't think was so great, I felt that way thinking about the way classical music was portrayed to me as a young child, meaning alabaster portraits of white men. And when I looked at the cover of Thelonious Monk, he was this beautiful black man with a goatee and a beautiful hat and a suit and a piercing vision that stared right at the piano keys. He felt real, whereas the others did not feel real. I couldn't get to the realness. I've found the realness now with relationship to those composers, but Thelonious let me know that there was a current history that I could address and that there was a sound that my neighborhood also cried out to have replicated at the piano and I would have to go search for it. And that felt good. And now, a brief word from our partners at UBS. From the same partnership that brings you the Intersections podcast comes the Art Basel and UBS Art Market Report. Out now, this year's edition shows how the global art market staged a phenomenal comeback in 2021. Find out how online sales fared as crowds returned to galleries and auction houses, and how changing global wealth impacted collecting trends. Get your copy now at UBS.com slash collecting. And now back to the show. Following up on this encounter with Elonius Monk, you became a very serious musician. And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the path that brought you to New York and what your early years there were like. Fortunately, I had a beautiful performing arts high school that I attended. And once a month, we would have happenings where the students organized their own happening. (laughs) It's what alerted me that there was not only a scene outside of Houston that I would have to think about, but for jazz as the center, then it's New York City. There's no other really a place. So I knew that I had to come to New York. And I came to New York in 93 to study with Jackie Bayard, a great pianist at Manhattan School of Music. But I would spend my weekends trying to go to galleries and see shows. I remember a pivotal moment was seeing Bruce Nauman's retrospective at MoMA, hearing sounds from far away that I didn't know how they were being made and then getting there and seeing a carcass being dragged across the floor in a circle. (laughs) So (laughs) that for me was not quite like a string quartet. It was something else. So that was kind of how I spent my New York years, going to see things that I knew were important for me to see in museums. That felt like also tantamount to then going to the club late at night to see Kenny Garrett at Sweet Basil in the village. That was how I spent my years. So in 2005, as I've read it, Joan looked you up in the Yellow Pages and called you up to talk about collaborating. And I'm curious, Joan, first of all, is it true that you looked up Jason Moran in the Yellow Pages? I mean, which is something that our younger listeners will not even know the existence of. I don't remember looking in the yellow pages. I remember looking Jason's number up. But I'll just quickly say that Adam Pendleton, an artist that Jason also is close to, were both showing at Yvonne Lambert. And I was looking for a composer for my next work. And I wanted to move outside my immediate circle. Adam said he's been listening to Jason and really thought his music was great. So we looked him up and I don't remember where. But we found that he was playing the next day at Lincoln Center. So we all, the gallerists and Adam and I went to hear him, loved it. I loved it. 
the next morning, I found his number. I must have looked it up. And I phoned him, which was very unusual for me to do. I was very shy. I always say he answered the phone. And it was a wonderful coming together when I said, do you want to work with me? And he said, yes, I'll be right down. So it was a great beginning. (laughs) Jason, had you encountered Joan's work before? No, I hadn't. But I like the way Joan says it, because I remember the day really clearly sitting in my room. My family was over because a lot of people came in town because Jazz at Lincoln Center was opening up this new campus right at Columbus Circle. So it was a big deal that I had a commission for their first season. I pick up the phone and Joan starts talking about the piece she wants to make at this place called Dia Beacon, which had been on my list of places to go. I talk about sound and I talk about language. When you travel the world, you often will not understand the language that someone speaks, but you might understand the tone within what they say. So I'm not even sure I understood everything Joan was saying in that moment, except the way Joan is talking, Jason, you need to be with her. (laughs) You need to work with that kind of confidence. So that's what immediately brought us together. So the piece was called The Shape, The Scent, The Feel of Things. And as I understand it, this was a piece that you were rehearsing at Dia Beacon, Is it the basement of Dia, for those who know the building? Yes. I was commissioned to do that piece for a couple of years before they finished the museum. But then by the time I called Jason, it was all ready to go. Mm -hmm. We can tell about the strenuous rehearsal schedule, which I enjoyed. Jason said he got exhausted. (laughs) We were given a very unusual window of six weeks to develop the music in relation to the video and movements at Dia Beacon. So we went up there during the week for six weeks and worked all day long. Jason would bring music in and look at the video and my movements and react to that. And then I would react to Jason's music and move in relation to that. We had a dialogue where I would say, I love that. I like that one better for here. So we went through the piece painstakingly from beginning to end. But for me, it was a wonderful and exciting process. I really loved it. Yeah, exactly. Look, for musicians, when they rehearse, you can go three, four hours and then you stop and then maybe you get two or three rehearsals, maybe, and then you have a concert. But for what Joan was creating, it demanded a lot more time. It demanded a lot more energy, (laughs) of which I think I may have been what I was just turning 30, maybe. I thought I had energy until the first week of rehearsal. (laughs) I was knocked out on my back for that weekend when we had two days off. I never knew what it felt like to sit at a piano for about seven hours straight and just try to create. And Joan allowed for that space and let me just make a lot of noise until we started to find these gems of phrases that we put together. And I really was bringing as much as I could to it. And Joan has such a keen ear that she would highlight moments that I also thought were really good. And then we would stitch it together. I think it'd be great if you could talk about what this piece is. What was the audience seeing? What were they hearing? What was the mix of images and performance and music that that piece encompassed? Well, it was developed in the space of one of the basements of Dia Beacon, a huge columned space. And it was based on the writings of Abby Warburg, a German art historian. That was the text. And there were characters. Jose Blondet played Abby Warburg, a performer, Ragini Haas, and I, we played the part of nurses. It was set up like a sanitarium because Abby Warburg had a breakdown and he wrote this text that I was using as proof that he had recovered. So I set up the situation. The audience was on bleachers looking down a long corridor of columns. Jason was very close to the audience on one side and this corridor was the performance space and there were projections 
on screens far away and then a screen that moved close. That was the physical situation. It was a performance, but also it had text. Jason also used the sound of the space. For those who don't know the building, the building itself is enormous, but that's what's particular about that basement is that it's a lot of unseparated space. It's just, I don't know how many tens of thousands of square feet it is, but I imagine it has a very particular kind of feel to it for a musician. Right. The acoustics were, if you played a note on the piano, it would ring for about 15 seconds of delay. <laughs> so it's got quite a different sound and feel. The themes that I composed had to work with that delay in mind, which felt great. But it's not traditionally how musicians practice in small practice rooms that are literally three feet by five feet. <laughs> we generally practice in very small spaces. So here I was graduating, being out in the world, playing concerts and festivals, but now working in a space that almost brought me back to the beginning. I would have to relearn how to play a phrase of music. So that would make sense in the room. Joan brings about an awareness of space that I also thought was really important for a musician to understand, that you'd have to think about the space. You just couldn't walk in and present and then feel like you did your job. But you'd have to really work with the space. And sonically, it's what musicians who travel the world or people who are concerned with sound when we travel the world, it's what we have to be aware of. Was that intimidating, the space and trying to play within it? Of course it was intimidating. I'm just out in the territory in a deep, deep water. <laughs> Meaning all of the rules are off with Joan. So you have to turn on a different pilot to navigate where the pieces need to go. But Joan is also a musician. So she sets up with a variety of percussion instruments or toys or rattles or bowls. And I'd say that even from back from when we were doing shapes in a field things, there was that notion that not only was Joan able to listen and move to the work, but she was also able to make sound in the work too. And that for me was really, really helpful and helped me relax into what the power of the piece would be was that we wouldn't just depend on the musicians to make the score, but that Joan was really keen and kind of being the conductor of the score. And each of the pieces, they all have this moment where we get to playing. It's a real exchange. One thing Joan talked about frequently when we'd be in process is having a moment where she wouldn't say it, but I'm putting the language, take a solo, <laughs> is what we call it in our world. I just want to say that Jason also had a big effect on me in that sense that he's from a jazz tradition. I had listened to a lot of jazz as a child, but I don't know that much about it. Jason gave me the place and the encouragement to develop the percussive aspects of my work. Because in my early work, I only made little tapping with stones, with blocks of wood, tap them together, hit them together. I had cones that I sang through, things like that. But it wasn't until I started working with Jason that I really felt the confidence to improvise the way we did together. So one of the things that was confusing or seemingly contradictory to me when I was doing the research for the podcast was the fact that on the one hand, Jason has described you, Joan, as reacting to the music during the performances. On the other hand, Joan, you're known for a very precise choreography. And I'm curious how these things fit together in your minds, because the reaction would seem to involve improvisation, but the precise choreography sounds like it's a pretty strict script. So how do these things play together during a performance, during rehearsal? Well, I'll say, first of all, Whenever Jason plays one of our favorite pieces from The Shape, I want to get up and run around and dance. That's the way his music makes me feel. So, yes, 
my performances are very precise and rehearsed, but the process that goes before that is totally open and improvisatory. I think what happened to me in my performance in working with Jason, I had never worked with a composer for that long, that frequently. What happened was that he would play the same pieces, so they'd always be predicted and I knew what they were. But because Jason is the kind of musician that he is, the dynamics would change. And that's what I would react to. And I think that more and more over the process of years that we work together, I react to his music with very small variations, but there's always a different energy. Even though I might do this almost the same movements, there's a different energy. My work is loose enough so that I don't do radically different things, but I might just move a little differently. That's where the dynamic relationship comes between us when we work together. It's sort of a freedom and an openness within a structure. I want to go a little bit broader now and talk about the creative process as both of you see it, not so much working with each other, but as individuals. Jason, you've talked a lot in interviews and podcasts about the way in which your personal life, your personal history and your work are kind of inseparable. And I think, Joan, you've talked in an almost diametrically opposite way about this notion that when you enter the work, so to speak, you cross a certain threshold. And it seems to me like this is one way in which you maybe see work and how you relate to it individually quite differently. Maybe I'll start with you, Jason. How do you see the border between the personal and the professional, between the work and the life? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't see it. <laughs> I've been attracted to the musicians and the ones I've been taught by who didn't blur that line. And I'd say that I'm also born of a music tradition that says that it is your duty to actually put your personal into the work. And that it wasn't necessarily only for your own therapy sake. It would also be for the therapy of those who didn't know they also needed to insert themselves. And as musicians, I just am attracted to what Duke Ellington decided to paint when he did a portrait, a tone parallel to Harlem, or the way Nina Simone yells at the piano and into the microphone about what she feels about the 1960s or America in general. I'm just born of that tradition where in music it's required, I'd say, because I think as a listener, it's what I'm attracted to. And so I just feel like that's what I'd say the history of jazz is also built upon from the earliest days in New Orleans with King Oliver and Louis Armstrong in the 19-teens, that they are painting that picture in a way that the music lives in the city for the city and for the people. And it expresses a tradition through improvisation that shows that there is a unity that can be arrived at without a piece of paper. <laughs> and that that unity will be needed to make a movement. So that's the one that I follow in. Joan, how do you see this? Well, I think that statement is true, that I always have to make a space, be it five by five or the size of Dia Beacon. I have to make a space that I step into and become almost an, not another character, but not quite my own personal self. I think that that is a reference to me. When I began to make performance in the late 60s, a lot of people were doing autobiographical works and talking about themselves, and I never wanted to do that. So when I say my personal life, I was talking not exactly what Jason is saying, but about autobiography. I never wanted to use autobiography. I always went outside of myself. On the other hand, I very much believe that the work exists in a contest in the world. So I have to know what's going on in the world. And in that sense, not be separated. And it affects my work. It affects the content of my work. On the other hand, I do have to step into that space. But it's not exactly 
throwing away everything personal because my work is recognizable as my work. I'm in it. So it's complicated in that sense. One of the interesting things I think about performance, whether it's performance and performance art or about musical performance, is that in other fields, such as painting or sculpture, you create the work and then you can walk away from it and you can see it. You can see the work itself and not a documentation of the work or not an editing of the work. And I'm curious if that's something that you think about, the fact that, Jason, you can never actually experience a Jason Moran performance because you're the one performing. I think every job comes with its drawback, but I'd say if that's the drawback, that ain't that bad. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because I think part of the fun of making it is actually not knowing, for me at least. The fun of making a performance is not knowing how it resonates for other people. And I'll never know that, even if I was able to listen to it back in the room and actually watch it. When you make something, you're not simply making it for yourself. I think you are making it for those who walk into the room to experience it. And they are to take those vitamins, whatever they receive from the work, into their own world, however they use it. That is actually what the work is about. As much as it seems more of a mirror to ourselves, but we really are showing the mirror to the audience. Joan has all these pieces about the mirror. I mean, I mean, we're really well aware of what performance means to people. And it's not simply within this white cube structure that we're talking about right now either. I'm talking about for civilization, that when you gather around sound, or a song and a fire in a circle, that that tradition is so long and so vital to our well-being that we mustn't eliminate it as a thing for sake of, let's say, the phone or whatever. That's what pushes me towards it. And and I love the moment of not knowing what it means. I'll say something about that. I really feel that I also can never know how the audience reacts. One just doesn't know that. Everybody reacts differently to the work. And from the very beginning, I thought of how things begin. I was interested in my art history. How do things begin? How does ritual begin? The no drama that affected me so deeply began in ritual. So I agree with Jason that it is a kind of ritual that we have, an enriched ritual that we have, that all of us have in this world. What have you learned from each other? You were born almost 40 years apart and you first worked together almost 20 years ago. I'll start with you, Jason. What have you learned from Joan? What I learned from Joan is to take space seriously. And it means really be conscious of the space you step into and the space you make around your work. And whether it's in sound or it's in an image or in a drawing, that you must take the space into account. And when you do that with the right kind of gesture, then the work will reverberate in a way that will help empower you and the one who witnesses it. Joan, what have you learned from Jason? First of all, I've learned what an incredibly generous person Jason is as an artist and as a person. I've learned that I can work in relation to Jason in a way that I haven't worked before. I've learned a different way of responding to music and the sounds that Jason makes. It's not maybe perceptible to the audience, but for me, it's very important. The dynamism in his work and the way he invents in small ways each time he plays a piece that we've worked on together, each time he brings something more to it. And I've learned, I probably experienced collaboration in a very different way for the first time with Jason. And I think it's partly because it's the form, maybe, Jason and I could talk about it sometime, because it's jazz because jazz brings that into the work. My last two questions to both of you. First off, what's the first artwork that you remember? Okay, 
I thought about this question. And it came to my mind when I was two years old, we went to Cuba, my mother and I and my grandmother. And I remember the mosaics in the sidewalks of Havana. And that's my first memory of something visual that impressed me, the beautiful mosaics as you walked on them. I was only two years old, but I do remember (laughs) the mosaics. Jason, what's the first artwork that you remember? This is going to sound, well, it's going to be what it is. My mother made her own ornaments for the Christmas tree. She painted them and baked them and put a glaze on them and then wrote Merry Christmas on the ornament itself and then hung it on the tree. And it shined very differently than the other ornaments. So as a kid, I always kind of craved the moment every Christmas when she would pull out the ornament. There were many that she made, but there was one that's kind of incredible jade green ceramic Christmas tree that she made for the tree. So my mom made the thing that I remember coveting. So coming up to the very recent past, Joan, what is the last artwork that really moved you? Well, oddly enough, and pardon me, it was the last concert I saw of Jason's at the Armory a few weeks ago. He performed a solo piano piece, or several pieces, I think, that he'd written. But it was simply amazing. Sorry, Jason. (laughs) That was the last thing that really moved me. And I was sitting behind Jason, and I was watching him play. And it was amazing to watch his physical reaction, his physical engagement with the piano. Amazing. It was beautiful. That was the last thing I saw that really inspired me. Jason, how about you? What's the last artwork that really hit you? Yesterday, I went to MoMA to see the Red Studio exhibition of Matisse's. And I got to say, sitting there and looking at how they replicated the works that were in his studio and the painting itself, there was something that I'm craving right now. And this is why the piece struck me, but I'm craving space and seeing how Matisse documented his own space in this painting and what he felt about it and what that space, what that studio's relationship to his home was on the next lot, one lot over. While his family was right next door, he had his space to make his work. It's been a thing, I'd say, since the pandemic, wondering where am I going to work? And not simply at the piano, but where am I going to use space? And Matisse didn't choose a photograph to do it. He, of course, chose his medium, which was paint. It struck me as a way to confidently move forward. And I don't know how I'm going to get a space, but I will. (laughs) So that was the last piece of movement. Yesterday, I saw that. (laughs) I think that's a great place to end. Joan, Jason, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for all the thoughtful answers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intersections, the Art Basel podcast brought to you by UBS. To make sure you don't miss an episode, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please tell a friend and consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Audiation.